The following message was given by John Payne at the 2018 Worship God Conference held in Frisco, Texas. John chapter 11, verse 43. When he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The man who had died came out his hands and feet bound with linen strips and his face wrapped with a cloth. And Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. Many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and had seen what he did, believed in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. So the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council and said, what are we to do? For this man performs many signs. If we let him go like this, everyone will believe in him, and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. But one of them, Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, said to them, you know nothing at all, nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. He did not say this of his own accord, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation, and not for the nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. So from that day on, they made plans to put him to death. Jesus, therefore, no longer walked openly among the Jews, but went from there to the region near the wilderness to a town called Ephraim, and there he stayed with the disciples. Now, the Passover of the Jews was at hand. and Many went up from the country to Jerusalem before the Passover to purify themselves. They were looking for Jesus and saying to one another as they stood in the temple, What do you think, that he will not come to the feast at all? Now the chief priests and the Pharisees had given orders that if anyone knew where he was, he should let them know so that they might arrest him. Now we come to our passage. Six days before the Passover, Jesus, therefore, came to Bethany, where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So they gave a dinner for him there. Martha served, and Lazarus was one of those reclining with him at the table. Mary, therefore, took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, he who was about to betray him, said, Why? Why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? He said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. And having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. Jesus said, leave her alone so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. The poor you always have with you, but you do not always have me. 
bless the preaching of your word. When I was a boy, I, I have a, a clear memory of one Christmas where we were visiting my mother's family. And during the craziness of, of Christmas morning, uh, there was a particular gift that someone had prepared to surprise my grandfather. My, my grandfather was a very uh, formidable and authoritative sort of man. He was not uh, prone to any kind of vulnerable emotion. Uh, but they were excited about this gift because it was a, a, a picture. They had taken a small photograph of his father, probably a picture he had seen in years. And they had blown it up somehow and, and put it in this very nice frame. And they had wrapped it. And so the, the room was electric. This was going to be the, the present of the morning. And they handed it to him. And I just remember seeing him sit in that chair. The room was just electric, leaning in, wanting to see what his expression would be. And, and, and he peeled back the wrapping, and then he was face to face. And the room was filled with excitement. He, he was still, subdued. He couldn't respond. He could just exclaim briefly over the next few seconds. He was obviously deeply affected. Finally, he got a, a full sentence out. That was the best man I ever knew. I never forget that moment. It was a, a family treasure. To see the, the treasure of his father revealed in that kind of emotion, that kind of affection. It was just a family moment, but in many ways it was similar. There was a, a similar truth to this moment. Now, this is not a family moment. This is a cosmic moment. This is a heavenly moment. But the same truth is present. Our affection reveals what we value. What we treasure is expressed in our Passion, our, our affection, our passion gives voice to, it reveals that thing, that person that we value most highly. Our, our affections, our passions, our emotions, they are an accurate rendering of that person we most highly treasure. And this passage is about revealing the appropriate amount of affection and passion that should be given to the greatest person anyone could ever know. That's what this passage is, is about. It, it invites us to ask the question and then to respond to it with faith. How affectionate am I toward Jesus Christ? Is Jesus Christ precious to me? Not simply whether we affirm the truth about him which is necessary. Not simply whether we, we hold appropriate doctrinal creeds of him or, or sing accurately about who he is. But, but is he precious to us? How do we respond in our heart, in our, in our soul? What is the measure of his value according to our emotions? Actually, there's a, a 19th century pastor named Octavius Winslow 
who says this is maybe the key, most succinct way of assessing the health of a soul. Listen to what he says. A felt conviction, he writes, of the preciousness of the Savior has ever been regarded by enlightened ministers of the gospel as constituting a scriptural and unmistakable evidence of the existence of divine life in the soul. And in moments when neither time nor circumstance would admit of the close scrutiny of a theological creed or a a nice analysis of spiritual feelings and emotions, the one and simple inquiry upon which the whole matter is made to hinge has been, what is your experience of the worth of the Savior? Is Christ precious to your heart? I think this passage from John, it it invites us to ask and answer the same question. Is Christ precious? Is he precious? Is he the best that you know? Now, this passage basically has three main characters. So I'm going to tell the story focused on each of their three main parts. That'll be the first part of the message, and then we'll seek to apply it focusing on three points of application. So just, let's just walk through the passage together, one character at a time. First, we have Mary's affection. Mary's affection. This is verses 1 through 3. Notice here the, the background, the setting of this story is six days before the Passover, where Jesus has come to Bethany, where Lazarus is, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. Quite a setting. Quite a setting. He's come back to this town. It's a couple of miles outside of Jerusalem. And they say, so, in verse 2, John says, so, which is obviously (laughs) not surprising. So, what did they do when Jesus came to town, who had risen Lazarus from the dead? Well, we thought we we should give him a dinner. (laughs) So, so, they gave a dinner for him there. Because, you know, boy, we just don't see that very often. They gave a dinner for him there. Martha served, as she always did, and Lazarus was one of those reclining with him at the table. We have got to feel the power of this setting. This is, this is essentially the motive provided in a verse, the motive, Mary's motive for her affection. It's provided in verse 1. Her motive is, first of all, her brother was dead, and now he's reclining at table. That's her motive. For her, the, the greatest glimpse before his own resurrection that would be provided that he is the resurrection and the life is her own brother sitting at dinner. And and here he is. This is the embodiment, the, the living representation of the identity of Jesus is in this home in Bethany. And you notice that in John, the resurrection of of Lazarus is actually the turning point, a significant turning point in the book, because that's when the Pharisees decide absolutely to put him to death. Absolutely, at that point, the, the ramp up of his persecution and his death, uh, it it escalates. There's a sense now that the the consideration is over, the evaluation is over. He now is absolutely target number one. He is going to be killed because of Lazarus, because there's simply no way to deny the power of a man who can raise Lazarus from the dead. For this passage, it becomes Mary's motivation. They give him a dinner, and because her own brother has been rescued from the grave, Mary has something she wants to say. That's her motive. Then we notice 
the measurement of her affection. Look at this. Mary, in verse 3, took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. Bob made a number of great points about oil and fragrances the other night. We, we don't fully appreciate the impossible extravagance this is. The, the ridiculous extravagance for, for a moment in a meal. To, to anoint a guest with oil at all was unnecessary. Uh, washing his feet or offering him something to wash with would have sufficed. To use this precious ointment... Judas actually provides unwittingly. He, he provides the, the cost, the value. This is a year's worth of perfume. A year's wages. A regular laborer would have to work a year and save every penny to purchase this amount of perfume. The, the, the sheer cost of this is, is beyond reckoning. And to use it simply for a moment... It isn't even like she gave him her car or something where he can use it. Oh, you can use these are really great sandals. You can use them. Uh, no, this is a moment. It's a moment of time. This, this incredibly costly gift, it, it's, it's what I can offer you in this moment. Not only that, but you, you notice the, the mode of her expression. She, she unbinds her hair. This would have been... Uh, if not scandalous, somewhat very inappropriate, not in keeping with decorum in this culture for her to unbind her hair in this way. It's, it's illustrating, I think, her, her absolute carelessness of her reputation and her cultural dignity. Mary was most likely a, a well-off woman. Certainly just the possession of this, this perfume rendered her to be very different than a common kind of day laborer situation. So we have this somewhat well-off woman who is undignifying herself in front of her close family and friends. She unbinds her hair. And then what does she do with it? You notice, notice in the passage, she takes her hair and, and she begins to, to wipe Jesus' feet. Now, now we've heard probably in other messages, the cleaning of the feet was for the lowest and most undignified slave. Jews were not allowed to do this to fellow Jews. Mary takes the position of the lowest slave, but not just that position. She uses her hair, which in that culture could be described as her glory, and it's as though she is saying, my greatest glory it is really worth your lowest part. My, my greatest glory, my greatest dignity, my, my most expensive possession, the, the most I would dare to do is to do honor to your feet. To take the place of the lowest slave to you, Jesus, is exactly where I want to be. Mary's affection is extravagantly costly. It is humble. It is undignified. It is passionate. It's overwhelming. There's a very real sense where when, when John says that the fragrance filled the room. 
It wasn't just the fragrance of the perfume. It was the fragrance of the, the scandalous, costly, extravagant nature of her affection. What did it do? It filled the room. It overpowered their cultural expectations. It overpowered their sense of, of the equity of this gift and this person. It demonstrated that for this woman, her, her, her treasure was so far beyond the reach of their imagination, so far outside the reach of their normal cultural measurements. She thought of Jesus as far beyond the greatest glory she could honor. Actually, her greatest glory was worth only his lowest, most undignified part. Mary's affection fills the room. But not everyone in the room agrees. Judas's objection. You notice this in verse 4. Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, he who was about to betray him, said, Why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? He said this, John adds, not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief, and having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. So he has a surface objection which Jesus answers, and he has a hidden motive, which John reveals. His surface objection is that this is such a waste. We could have sold that. A year's wages would do a lot of good. We, we could give that to the poor. And often it's the case that a cold heart will often leave a religious vocabulary and even religious actions long after it has left warm affections. It's often the case that we can look like a disciple and even talk like a disciple long after we've lost the love of a disciple. Isn't it a warning to us? It says of Judas, one of his disciples. In other words, on the outside, uh, Judas looked like one who followed Jesus. He listened to Jesus. He walked with Jesus. He, he bore the indignities of Jesus. He had come with Jesus all the way to the final moments. Boy, isn't that a warning for us? Judas didn't betray Jesus in year one or two or even most of year three. He betrayed him in the final moment. You get the impression, I think, from the Gospels and commentators will say that, that the disciples often write with hindsight about Judas something they were unaware of in the moment. Only in hindsight did they look back and see, wow, how, how, how is this possible? Well, he, yeah, he was, oh, he was the thief. I mean, I, I see how his heart just turned aside from Jesus. Though everything on his outside made him look like a disciple. He objects. He objects, and his inner motive is he wants for himself the glory that belongs to Jesus. John exposes that motive. He wants it for himself. He's thinking, look, that is a serious amount of cash. We could sell that. It would go in the common money bag and think what I could do with that kind of cash. He wants it for himself in a, a greed and a craving and idolatry that will eventually reveal itself when he finally, and not long after this moment, will say, I, I will actually trade you Jesus for money. If, if you will give me 
30 pieces of silver. That's what he is worth to me. I, I will trade him to you. I'd rather have what that money can buy than I'd have Jesus. I'd rather have that. And he says in this moment, it's almost like he can't help himself. The reality of his heart comes pouring out in this moment. Why? 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 And he's, he's too smart to say honestly why. So he makes up a reason. Well, we could give this to the poor. Jesus, surely knowing his heart, just answers the other objection. And, and makes it clear. Look, this extravagance is not extravagant. It's very important that the main point of this passage hinges on Jesus' answer to Judas. I think that's partially why he doesn't answer the hidden motive, which he was aware of. The main point is answered when, when Jesus says, as right as it would be to help the poor. Let's be clear that this amount of giving and devotion and extravagant affection towards me is exactly right. Amen. You see the brilliance of Jesus' teaching. He doesn't undermine giving to the poor. He just makes it clear. Look, we're, we're not going to compare these two. You're not going to get away with trying to think less of me in some religious way of, of kind of benevolent giving. That's not your heart anyway, Judas. The, the real issue here is you don't think I'm worth this, and I'm telling you, yes, I am. You feel the, the point of this passage, the, the almost shock you, you would feel in a culture that views Jesus as a powerful prophet and an impressive man. I mean, not many dead raisings have been happening in Bethany over the last several hundred years at least. It's been a long time since Elijah, a long, long time. But you would also think that he would have a decorum of humility and say, no, 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 this, this, this is too much. Why don't you give this to the temple? Donate it in my name. Why don't, why don't you, you know, use this for the poor of Jerusalem? Or let's, let's use it for, you would think that there would be some, some reaction. The, the almost understated agreement of Jesus with Mary's offering is the point. That's the point. You won't always have me. And this gift, which she's only going to be able to do on this body for a very brief amount of time is exactly right. Listen, Jesus doesn't think of Mary's gift as extravagant. You know, sometimes I think when we, we read this passage, we can think of it that way too. Now, we, not, you know, we wouldn't be like Judas and say, you know, give it to me or, or let's not be blessing Jesus. But we might think of Mary as having kind of like special extravagant worship abilities. We, we might think of her as having this unique uh, giving to Jesus moment. I mean, be honest with yourself. Don't you, aren't you tempted to think of it that way? Well, good for Mary. That was, boy, that's like Hall of Fame level worship of Jesus right there. There's like Mary, and then there's like other, you know, the guy who fell down and came back, the leper, and they're kind of up in the upper echelon, first ballot Hall of Famers. Uh, you know, I, I think that's who they are. No, what Jesus is saying is this is exactly the right amount of worship for the value that I am. Brothers and sisters, we need to feel that point. The true value of Jesus is revealed in impossible expressions of affection. Undignified, costly 
humble, passionate, out of the ordinary, culturally excessive expressions of affection. That's not unusual worship. That's appropriate worship for the Son of God. Judas' objection is vile in the sight of heaven. It is the objection that is made every time an idol in my heart and yours rises up and claims the passion that should belong to Jesus alone. No one is going to be Judas in all of humanity, but there are a lot of Judas lookalikes, even in moments in my own life and in yours. Because my passion sometimes is for me to receive or me to get glory that belongs to Jesus. It's to say we can worship Jesus as the highest, but I want a significant percentage as well. And what Jesus is saying is, no, 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 that's the nature of idolatry. It tries to muscle in on what belongs to Jesus alone. And Jesus says, Mary is the one that gets it. Mary often is, is often that way portrayed in the gospel. She's the one that gets the true heavenly reality. There is no greater one than this. There is no greater treasure than this. You cannot outpassion the value of Jesus Christ. Yes, Judas' objection is vile. In the sight of heaven. It is not reasonable. It is not normal. It is not cultural. It is vile. And that's why John says, He who would betray him objected to the kind of worship she gave him. Third character is the most important Jesus' sacrifice. Mary's affection, Judas. Objection and Jesus' sacrifice. Now, like John often does in his gospel, um, John doesn't write like Paul. Paul has, you know, three nice, neat paragraphs all with their own separate point. Uh, John just weaves things in and out. Jesus, if you notice, he begins and ends this passage. If you notice that, he's the one who comes to Bethany. He initiates the trip to Bethany. And then he's the one that answers the objection and concludes the discussion about whether or not this was appropriate. So Jesus starts and ends the story, and, and that's on purpose. That's on purpose because what pervades this discussion, even more powerfully than Mary's affection, is the impending sound of Jesus' death. Did you notice the therefore? Six days before the Passover, Jesus therefore came to Bethany. Immediately before that, John makes the point that the Pharisees had been basically recruiting people to tell them where Jesus is. If you can find, he's been out in the wilderness. Look, if you can find him, if you can, there's no cell phones, right? So this is all word of mouth. If you can find him, come tell us so that, as Caiaphas just said, we can kill him. Come tell us. So he's turning the nation that should belong to Jesus into spies against Jesus. And they're saying, come, come tell us. And so Jesus has been in the wilderness and you get the strong impression that he will not die until he decides it's time for him to die. So when the Greeks come in the very next chapter and say, his hour, he says, has come. 
It's as though he's deciding, and now the time has come. And you, you, you see clearly in John that that hour was going to coincide with Passover. And so John weaves this theme throughout the book of John, where he connects the death of Jesus with the death of the Passover lamb. You go all the way back to when John the Baptist first sees Jesus in the distance. And he calls out what? Behold the Lamb of God. And then that builds and builds until Jesus says, six days before the Passover, I will go to Bethany. Because everyone's looking for me. And clearly the best place to hide is right next to the guy I rose, raised from the dead. Th think about that for a moment. Let's just think about that. The whole nation is looking for him. Why did he go to Bethany? So they would know where he was. It begins the final moment when Jesus orchestrates his own betrayal and death. It starts in this moment in Bethany when you could almost sense Jesus' orchestration of this when he is quite literally seeing this as his pre-death burial anointment. Did you notice that in the end phrase? Let her keep it, Jesus says. For my burial. In Jesus' mind, it is as though he is already being anointed as a dead man. It would be a very odd thing for him to say this after she just poured this oil all over him. It would be odd to say this, you know, this is good because someday I'm going to die. No, there's a sense that right now this is happening. Right now I'm being anointed for my burial. He goes to Bethany six days before the Passover. Why? Because in the mystery of God's sovereign timing of the whole thing, the great Passover lamb is going to be led to the cross in the same time when Passover lambs are being slaughtered. Why? Because as John said, he is the lamb of God slain for the nation. Because it is better for one man to die than for the whole nation to perish. It is better for that one lamb of God to be sacrificed for the people. So Jesus sacrificed it. it. It's there in the room. He's come to Bethany. He's sitting next to Lazarus. I mean, the one place you can look for him. Check where Lazarus is. And then when he's anointed with this, well, what does he immediately say? Let her keep it for my burial. The poor you will always have with you, but you will not always have me. This body will not be here much longer. Listen, the, the, the point of this passage is that Mary worshipped better than she knew. Didn't she? She worshipped better than she knew. She knew that Jesus had power over death. She did not know that he would surrender himself to death. She knew that he had the ability to raise Lazarus from the grave. She did not know that he would send himself to the grave. She knew that he could temporarily relieve the effects of the curse. She did not know that he would take the curse on himself. She knew that he would be a gentle and kind and life-giving Lord and Master. She did not know that he would be a life-giving lamb on the cross. 
She knew that he could overcome death in Lazarus. She did not know that he could overcome death for everyone that believes in him. She didn't know that. So she worshiped much better than she knew. She worshiped better than she could have seen because if she could have seen what heaven saw in that moment, she would have seen angels saying, yes, this is exactly right. Anoint him. Who else has perfume? Bring it into this room and anoint him. You know why? Because he's about to go to the cross and the unblemished lamb is about to suffer for your sins. He's about to die, the unblemished one, the son of God. He's about to be betrayed and cursed and scandalized. And you know what? He's pushing play on the whole thing. Behold, the lamb of God the one who will take on himself Lazarus's death and curse and Mary's too and yours too and mine too. Anoint him. Anoint him. Pour it on him. This book was written decades after Jesus died, I think what we're supposed to see is you often see throughout John, the, the real meaning is right there below the surface. It's right there below the surface. Any reader of John that's reading this after Jesus died should just be throwing their head back in awe and saying, oh, Mary, thank you that there was somebody. Because everything else in this passage, you know what it is? It's people. bunch of false worshipers shouting Hosanna because they want a human savior who will mock and malign him when he walks up that hill. And Mary is this one moment of saying this is how much he's worth. Brothers and sisters, the crucified Savior deserves every amount of passion we can pour over him. You make three applications. How can we reflect? the affection that he is worth. Three areas of life. First, your study. Brothers and sisters, we must study the cross of Christ until our heart overflows like Mary. Do not be content that you live in the gospel-centered tribe. Judas was a disciple of Jesus himself. Do not be content that you go to a gospel-centered church, that you listen to gospel-centered teaching, that you have gospel-centered podcasts, that you get gospel-centered daily devotionals, that you have gospel-centered bracelets. Do not be content. Let me re-ask Winslow's question, is Christ precious to our souls? Is he precious like Mary? Is his cross 
precious because you can bet if Mary had known what was about to happen, oh, she would have looked for anything else she could pour out on him. Is Christ precious? Is his cross precious to us? Not, not known, not just believed in, not just sung about. Precious, glorious, marvelous, affectionate, loved, treasured, clung to. Do we love Jesus Christ and seeing him die for our sins on that cross? Do we exalt the name of the lamb who died for sinners? Do we love him? Precious to us. Charles Spurgeon says, remember where you first received salvation. Go at once to the cross. There and there only can you get your spirit aroused. No matter how hard, how insensible, how dead we may have become, let's go again. And all the rags and poverty and defilement of our natural condition, let's clasp that cross. Let's look into those languid eyes. Let's bathe in that fountain filled with blood. This will bring back to us our first love. This will restore the simplicity of our faith and the tenderness of our heart. The more we dwell where the cries of Calvary can be heard, the more noble our lives become. Nothing puts life into men like a dying Savior. Brothers and sisters, go at once to the cross. Go at once there and study him and study those cries. That's what Mary would have done. Because in this passage, it is the Passover lamb that is being anointed. Let us go where that lamb died. And let us meditate until we marvel and marvel until we worship your study. Secondly, your weekdays. Honor this Savior in everyday life. In everyday life. We got a, a dog recently, somewhat to my chagrin, but your children are only little ones, so we got a dog, and he's still just a few months old, so he sleeps in the kennel still at night. And every morning, someone, almost always my wife, goes down and, and lets him out. And it is still surprising to us how excited he is to see us in the morning. <laughs> I mean, there is obviously absolute physical necessities that have to be handled. But even those at times are delayed. So he can just express the overwhelming joy and then after he does what he has to do, and we're sitting there, we have to wait outside, he, he just comes and jumps and jumps again. And you say, I, I get it, you need a few moments of petting and attention. No, you don't understand. I live for the morning when I see you. I live for it. I mean, all night long, the worst thing was not being with you. I mean, I'm sure if he could talk, that's what he would say. Though it was just terrible. You weren't here. And I, I just, I can't wait. This is so exciting that we're here and we're talking. And I love it. And the great thing about dogs, I, I, I was thinking about this the other day. I don't know if any other animal does this. You know, dogs have a tail, right? And it's, it's involuntary. It just wags when they're happy. They can't, I don't know if any other, like you don't think, like elephants don't do that, I don't think. 
you know, waggy tails. You don't see other animals, bunny rabbits. I don't know. Maybe they do. But, but dogs, it's just big, long tail. And it just goes nuts. You can't hide it. There's a sense of this is the fulfillment of the long and treacherous night of which there was no end. My master has come. The watchman waited for the morning and the dawn has arisen. And what's really, really terrible is that I'm convicted by my dog. (laughs) I wake up every morning. So do you. Our mornings, our days, our afternoons, they should be filled up with Jesus. I'm not saying this just to commend sort of the devotional practices, though certainly that's a good application for me. I'm saying not that our days should be less practical but rather that our normal practices should be more spiritual. Octavius Winslow again says, Beloved reader, is Jesus increasingly precious to your soul? Each day's history, each day's trial, each day's sin, each day's need should endear the Savior to your heart. Because in each and all of these circumstances, you should have direct and close dealings daily, and and personal transactions with Christ. You cannot cultivate an intimacy with Christ and not be enamored of his beauty, charmed with his graciousness, and absorbed with his love. Be cautioned against an eclipse of the Savior. Let no object come between your heart and Christ. That includes anything that happens during the day. Do not be presumptuous when in high spiritual frames, nor be depressed when in low ones. Do not let your conscious shortcomings, failures, and stumblings estrange your affections from Jesus. Nor allow pride or carelessness to insinuate itself if the Lord confers upon you some special proof of his favor or regard. Your daily life, your moments before and after the boss, before and after the sales meeting, during the tantrum moment at home, talking with the neighbor next door, discussing the needs of your aging parents. Those are moments to be thrilled that you have a savior. I'm not saying our days should be less practical, but our normal practices should be more full of the atmosphere of adoring Christ. Finally, your Sundays. Your Sundays. Brothers and sisters, let our gathered worship be marked by extravagant affection. May our songs not only be creeds of assent, but crescendos of affection. 
I don't doubt that where we are in the broader movement of this gospel-centered move that God has done recent decades, I don't doubt that our children and our grandchildren will, will still be singing songs about the cross, about the gospel, about righteousness, not our own. I, I don't doubt that. But I could see the atmosphere of those rooms being formal and not affectionate. May it never be. Let our Sundays be full of the aroma. May it fill the room. May it be evident to all that this gathering is one of passion. Principle, yes. Cross-centered, yes. Gospel-focused, yes. Christ-exalting, yes. Word-driven, yes. But passionate, Passionate like that room was, filled with the aroma of shouts and cries and tears and bowings and the lifting of hands and the raising of, of, of our hands to the Lord and declaring, you, you are the best one that I know. Let there be strong men who weep at the old rugged cross. Let there be bold women who lift up their arms in gratefulness to hear the old story again. That our feet move to the rhythm of a good gospel chorus. That our shouts be heard when the joy of his salvation is proclaimed. That our hearts flow on Sunday. And may the gathering church be filled with the aroma of adoration. Built entirely upon truth and offered to our risen Savior. Let me close with Spurgeon again. Come, dear friends. Do you feel that kind of emotion in your hearts at this time? Do you even now feel that so perfectly has Christ won the verdict of your understandings? So completely has he bound in silken fetters every movement of your affections that you need, you need to be doing something which shall have but this one aim, to express your love to him who has made you what you are. Indulge the emotion. Crown it with action and continue it through life. In this point, be not slow to be imitators of the sister of Martha and Lazarus. Oh, sweet love of Jesus, fill our souls to the brim and run over in delicate, personal service. Let's pray. You've been listening to a message by John Payne given at the 2018 Worship God Conference held in Frisco, Texas. For more information on the conference, please visit worshipgodconference.com.